I thank you for how you've blessed us today, how you've given us your word, how um, you've saved us, and how you've promised to, for, uh, to save us, to bring us to heaven uh, with you. You've promised to um, finish the work you started, God. I, I do thank you and pray um, that your word would um, bear fruit in our lives today, that we would, our perspectives, which so often are, are focused on the here and now and focused on the temporal, I pray that our, um, our perspective would be lengthened a little bit to the eternal this morning, and that would bear fruit in our lives, God. Um, thank you for, for these people. Thank you for the love and fellowship we have, and I pray that we can um, focus together on what you have for us this morning. You would be our teacher. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Philippians 2 today, so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians 2. My brother, Kyle... He, uh, hopefully he told you we're going to be in Philippians a little bit this yeah, month. And good. He did not fail in that regard then. Good for him. So we'll be looking at chapter 2 today. And as he probably explained, Paul wrote Philippians from where? Anybody? Prison. Thank you. That was not a rhetorical question. Prison. Good job. Um, Paul wrote this from prison. Now, it wasn't the worst prison um, imprisonment he faced in his life, but it wasn't necessarily pleasant. And it's interesting to me that a lot of people notice that the book of Philippians is kind of known as the epistle of joy. Over and over again, you hear Paul talking about joy, about rejoicing. One of my friends kind of joked that Philippians is the book where um, people get all the verses to make like Christian house decorations out of. You see a lot of Philippians verses on there, like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like across the coffee mug, right? Philippians has a lot of encouraging um, verses like that. And it's amazing to me that Paul wrote this from prison. Paul from prison um, is not concerned about himself primarily. He is concerned about others. And I don't know about you, but when I have problems, big or small, whether it be traffic or illness or just not having a good day, didn't get a good night of sleep, who do I focus on first? What do I focus on first? Me. Number one, right? I focus, I focus on myself, especially when I have problems. I have self-pity. I, I, I don't care about others. I don't care to serve and sacrifice for others because, goodness, things are going so bad for me right now. Yet Paul, as he says elsewhere, he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians. And Paul loves others in big trials. He rejoices. People are like, Paul, you're in prison. Aren't you upset? I just care about your faith. I just care about the, your spiritual health. I just care about your joy. And what an example that is for us today. That we should care about each other's faith. We should rejoice through good times and through bad times. This week, I'm sure you guys heard about Fort Hood, the army base in Texas, where an officer at that army base, he was actually a, a licensed psychiatrist at the army base. He apparently was going to get deployed to Iraq at the end of the month, and he turned and, and shot and killed 12 or 13 people and wounded uh, a few dozen more at the army base there. This army base was their home. This, is what, this was the biggest army base, I understand, in the United States. All the soldiers who lived there and the several thousand civilian employees, that was safe. You know, when you go to Iraq or you go to Afghanistan, it's kind of expected that you're going to get shot at because that's the enemy soil. But the army base... Was their, was their safe haven. It was their home. Things like that aren't supposed to happen there. And now soldiers are somewhat insecure, I read in an, in an article. 
They're, they don't feel entirely safe there because obviously several dozen people just got shot. <coughs> this man took, took his, um, his wants, his desires, his emotions, and he took them out on other people. And, the, and at that moment, they're supposed to be a unified army, but they have one of their own shooting at themselves. And they're shooting against each other. They're supposed to be unified, serving a common goal and a common purpose, fighting evil, fighting the enemy, and yet they're fighting against one another. An army like that is ineffective. It's not, it's not powerful. It's weak. Imagine if that was happening over in Iraq. You know, they're, 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 trying, they're, they're in a battle together, and someone turns and starts shooting his own, his co-soldier. An army like that's not going to work. In the same way, you and I must be unified. Our churches, our, our families must have unity. We must be serving a common goal and a common purpose. We must be sharing the same values. And you know what kills unity? The, the, the army officer, what he did is he took his desires and his feelings and he, he made them the most important thing. He made them more important than anyone else's desires. Didn't matter what was good for anyone else, it mattered how he felt. Pride is what kills unity. Putting yourself at number one kills unity. It kills spiritual health. It kills our powerful witness for the gospel. Because people in the world, there's drama all the time. You read about pro sports teams and two-star players don't like each other and they're insulting each other. They won't pass each other the ball. You, you, you read about politics, right? And what unity means is, I'm right, you're wrong, come join me on the right side. That's what, that's what unity means in, in, in politics. You see this in the world all the time. And yet we are supposed to be different in here. Christians are supposed to be different. Pride, let me just define pride and humility real quick. Pride is seeking your own agenda on your own strength for your own glory, even at the expense of others. You put yourself as number one. You put yourself as the, solar, as the sun in the middle of the solar system, so to speak, and everything revolves around you or me when, when, when I practice pride. Humility is seeking God's agenda on God's strength for God's glory, especially at the service of others. Let me read those two things one more time. Pride, you seek your own agenda on your own strength for your own glory, even at the expense of others. Humility, you seek God's agenda on God's strength for his glory, especially at the service of others. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about humility. He talks about unity. I titled this today, Joyful Humiliation, Joyful Exaltation. And we'll look at that a little bit more right now. Let's read uh, Philippians 2, verse 1, verses 1 through 11 together. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We are all prone to put ourselves above everyone else. That's in our nature. I don't have to remind you, hey, love yourself. I don't have to remind you to do that. We naturally look out for the best for ourselves. When you go in the, at, to like a salad bar at Sizzler, you don't go grab the worst tomatoes for yourself. I don't grab any tomatoes because I don't like them. But you don't grab the worst tomatoes for yourself, right? No, you grab the best ones. Nice, red, juicy tomatoes. You actually, you know, you simmer through it a little bit to find the best ones. We naturally put ourselves number one. We naturally look out for ourselves. This afternoon, when, when Kelly, my wife, and I go home, she's not going to have to ask me to turn on a football game. Honey, just so you know. She's not going to say, hey, Ryan, I know you really like football. Why don't you turn on a game? And I would be like, I forgot. Football is on on Sunday, and I like football, especially in high depth. She's not going to have to ask me to do that. I naturally put myself number one. You and me, that's our inclination. That is our nature. Paul wants us to counter that in this passage this morning because that kind of, if we live out our nature like that, it will lead to disunity in our church. It will lead to disunity in our families. I just want to give us three simple reminders this morning about unity, about humility, about pride. Three things. I'll tell them all to you up front. I prefer that you stay awake even though I'm telling them all to you, but here they are so you know where we're going. One, pursue unity. Two, practice humility. Three, Receive glory. Very simple. First, we must pursue unity. Look down with me what Paul says here um, at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Some of you might say, that is hard. It is impossible for me to have unity in my home. There's always fighting. That is hard. Some of the people here, they like hymns, and I like normal worship songs, modern worship songs. I can't be unified with those people. That's impossible. That's for really mature Christians, unity and humility, right? That's only for people that are like really close to Jesus. Look what Paul says in verse 1. One word that he repeats over and over here is any. Now gain encouragement from this. Some of you... May, may be new Christians. Some of you might meet Jesus during the course of this message, I hope and pray. Some of you may have known Jesus for decades. But look what he says. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He doesn't say if there is abundance of affection and sympathy. He doesn't say if there is an abundance. He doesn't say if you're almost perfect. If you're Jesus' right-hand man, then practice what I'm about to say. He says, if there's any spiritual life in you at all, if you have your sins forgiven, this is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. And notice how Paul talks about this. He doesn't say, if there's any encouragement, go be unified. He says, complete my joy by being unified, by having the same love. Paul's joy, once again, was tied to the unity of the churches, to the spiritual health of the churches. If Paul was alive today, he would tell you it would make me happy if you guys were on the same page, if you guys were achieving a common goal, if you guys were unified. 
if you guys were sharing the same values and, and loving one another. That would make me happy. Not if there's a good sale, not if I get a nice car, not if I, if I get a big raise or a, a smaller cut, right? It, it, would, it would make me happy if you guys are unified on the same page. He says, complete my joy. It was his joy when the churches were unified. Is that your joy? When, when, when people are singing together, worshiping Jesus together, when people are doing ministry together, when someone has a need and someone who doesn't really know that person that well goes and meets that need, is that your joy? Does that thrill you? Or do things of this world thrill you more? I know it's a temptation for all of us, but Paul says his joy was tied to the church's unity, to the spiritual health of the church. Now look how he describes that unity. He says, complete my joy by being three things of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, have the same mind. Now, what this is not saying is you all must agree on everything. That's not what this is saying. This is not saying you all must like the same kinds of food. That's also not what this is saying. Um, what he's saying is that we all must be on the same page and share the same values and have the same goals. When we have the same mind, we, we are unified as to our big picture purpose. We have an understanding among one another. Here's where we're going. This is what this church needs to be about in Glendora. We need to be about the gospel. We need to be about worship. We need to be about love. We're, we're unified in that regard. We're all, we're all going the same direction. Imagine um, if you're trying to pick something up, like if you're helping a friend move and you're trying to pick up a big table, and one guy, Ed's got the one corner, and I got the other corner, and he's walking the opposite direction of me. Hmm. We're not going to get that truck out to, or that uh, table out to the truck very well, are we? Because Ed's going off into no man's land, and I'm trying to do the right thing. Sorry, Ed. <laughs> right? We need to be going in the same direction. We need to be unified. And how? How do you get unified? I play in, in the worship band over at my church, and sometimes before, or every week before we start playing, we pass around a tuner. Pass around the guitar tuner. <coughs> Everybody tunes their guitar to the same tuner. So how, the church gets unified in the same way. And the tuner is God's word. So throughout the week, you guys probably don't see each other every day. Maybe you do. Praise the Lord for that. You probably don't, though. But if you take the tuner of your heart, God's word, and read it and conform your mind to it and submit to it, if you each do that individually, when you gather here on Sundays, when you gather here on Wednesdays, when you evangelize on Saturdays, you're going to be unified because you're all taking your cues from the same leader, right? That's what God wants from us. We need to have the same mind. Secondly, he says we need to have the same love. This is, this is that unity of mind, that internal unity that we share. This is that unity lived out. This is loving each other, being willing to serve each other um, without playing favorites. Meaning if somebody has a need, you meet it. It doesn't matter if they're your best friend, your spouse, your sister, or an enemy. You meet that need. We need to have, the, the, the word for love here is agape, as you've probably, as you've probably heard at times. And that, that love is not a, it's not a feel-good love. It's not, you know, you make me feel so nice about myself, therefore I'm going to do something for you. It's, it's a love of the will, a love of the mind, motivated by a desire to see good in someone's life. So, so I may not know you, but I can have love for you. I can have true Christ-like love for you when I choose to sacrifice to meet your needs. The church, you guys... Us in here today need to be known by love. Jesus says it in John 13. 
The world will know you are, you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. Without playing favorites, you meet each other's needs. Sometimes that love is shown through just a simple hug. Sometimes it's shown through listening to someone. Sometimes it's shown through buying somebody a meal, through meeting, meeting someone's financial needs. Sometimes it's shown through, through giving somebody a little kick in the seat of the pants and say, hey, you're not living the way Jesus wants you to live. That love can be shown many ways, but we need to love each other in the church. We need to all be willing to bear one another's burdens. Amen. And that's how the world will know that we are, we are Christ's. And lastly, he says we need to be in full accord. This literally means right here, it means one souled. It's like the outworking of having the same love. We need, to, we need to have one soul, one purpose, one heartbeat. And when we do this, when we're all on the same page, all tuning our hearts to the same tuner, the world will see. And you know what they'll see? They will see God. Because Jesus says in John 10 that I and the Father are one. God has love. God is, is unified, one purpose. He doesn't like waver, like maybe I should forgive your sins, maybe I shouldn't, right? You know, Jesus' de death on the cross works today, but not tomorrow. He has one constant purpose. One purpose going in one direction that's clear, and he's willing to sacrifice to meet anyone's needs, forgiveness of sins and salvation. When we, when, and when we live like that together, when I live like that towards my family, towards you, towards, towards the people at my church, people see Jesus in us. We reflect the nature of God when we love this way. I don't know how many of you guys are, are Lakers fans. You should be because you're in L.A. County. But in 2004, I believe it was, they had a crazy team. Four or five Hall of Famers on one team. But the thing is, in the this was in the newspapers and the media, they weren't all really great friends. They kind of argued. I should make more money than you. I should take more shots than you. I, I don't really like you, and I'm not going to pass it to you that much. They argued. They were all great players on their own. But in the playoffs, they played a team that didn't have as great players, the Detroit Pistons, but they were a better team. They worked together. They didn't play favorites. I like Kobe. I don't like Shaq. They didn't do that. They passed to one another. They worked for a common goal. And your Los Angeles Lakers went down in flames, people, because they played a team. Are we a team this morning? Do we have each other's backs? Are we willing to sacrifice our wants, our desires to pursue unity? Unity doesn't just happen. Yesterday, Kelly and I went up to Oak Glen, which is, you know, uh, 50, 60 miles away. Um, and, and there's apple orchards up there, right? And there's dozens and hundreds of lines of apple trees, thousands of apple trees. And as I took pictures of these yesterday, I thought, this didn't just happen. Someone had to work. Someone had to buy the land, had to plant in an orderly fashion the trees. They had to um, uh, make, put pesticides on them to make sure the trees didn't die. They had to irrigate them. Then they had to go harvest the fruit, clean it off so I can drink some killer apple cider yesterday. Oh, any, side note, that was awesome. It didn't just happen, and unity doesn't just happen, which leads us to number two. We must practice humility. If we do not practice humility, unity won't be present in our families and in our churches. And remember what humility is. I'm sacrificing for others. I'm pursuing God's agenda to meet others' needs. I'm putting myself at the end of the line. Everyone else is more important than me. We must practice humility. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I looked up the Greek when it says do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You know what it literally means? This is a big secret. It literally means nothing. I was hoping it would be like 80%. Do 80% of your things not out of rivalry or conceit. No. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. What that means, rivalry and conceit, it's talking about inwardly and outwardly. Sometimes I do things to serve my wife, right? But, but I don't really feel like doing it. And, and, and I force myself to do it. Newsflash, honey, sorry. <laughs> and, and this is saying that I need to genuinely, in my heart, hold her as more valuable than myself. But I can't just do it inside. I have to actually go do it, inwardly and outwardly. We need to value others, and then we need to put that into practice. And that doesn't just happen. When you have downtime, maybe when you're driving in your car, maybe when you're reading your Bible in the morning, take some time and literally think. How can I serve other people? How can I serve those God has put in my life? You need to make a plan to do it. Do nothing in rivalry or conceit. Do not look out merely for your own interests. Don't look out only for your own interests. I guarantee you within 15 seconds of when you wake up, you already have A through Z of what you, you need to do that day. Let God examine that list and tell you how to serve somebody else. In the big things and the small things, sharing the remote control, choosing where to go for eat. I want Chipotle family. That's where we're going. Not like that, right? We, we, you know, we need, to, we need to consider others as more valuable than ourselves. So we need to reject selfishness and pride, and we need to actively seek to love and serve others. You put off your nasty, dirty clothes of pride, and you put on your nice tuxedo, or evening dress, ladies, of humility and service. Imagine this. Uh, he says, th this, this part of the verse always stands out to me. At the end of verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. So you do it in your mind. You, you, I look at what somebody else thinks, and I value it more than myself. So if, if it was a weight or a balance, your opinion is heavier than mine, and it matters more than mine. If you were having the president over tonight for dinner, my guess is you would double check to make sure you were cooking something that he liked, he wanted to eat. My guess is you would default to him when choosing what to talk about, um, what to watch on TV afterwards. You would make his opinion matter more. You wouldn't just do whatever you wanted to do because it, he's an important person, right? And so when he's over there, you treat him with honor. You go, I'm, I'm defaulting to you. And yet, with your spouse, with your siblings, with, with um, your friends, when decisions are to be made, you go, I'm the most valuable person in the room. So we're doing, we're doing what I want to do. Unity in this moment is everybody changing their minds to, to what I have to say. But this verse is saying to literally look at the people around you and give their opinions, their values more weight in big decisions and small decisions. That's totally against our nature. And if we live like that, if we, if we defer to others, not, not by being a doormat, or not, and also not by submitting to wrong things that people do, but by legitimately caring and making someone else's opinion matter more. That's true love. And that promotes unity. My dad hates golfing. He, he doesn't ever say that, but he hates it. He's not a patient guy. And FYI, golfing requires patience. 
right? And yet sometimes he'll call me and my brother and go, hey, you guys want to go hit some golf balls today? Because he knows that I enjoy it and he wants to spend time and hang out. He hates it. I know he does. Even right now he's going, you're right, I do. Why do I ever do that? But even, even then he goes, I want to hang out with you. Do you want to go golfing? And then, most gloriously, he picks up the bill. <laughs> so I say yes very quickly. Right? So that, that's humility. He goes, I just want to hang out, enjoy being together. I'm going to do something that you want to do. I'm not going to, you know, sit in the garage and drink Mountain Dew and hang out, which is what I want to do. I'm going to go golfing with you, do something that you want to do to spend time with you. And, and trust me, that doesn't go unnoticed. Like I, when I'm thinking of an example, that popped right into my head. I also remember when, when my rocket scientist engineer father, when I, as a teenager, started learning how to surf, he, he, he couldn't care less for the beach. And yet he'd, he'd go out there at 6 in the morning with a big blanket and a video camera and just film us. Film us in the water, falling on our faces. Because he cared. Because in humility, my opinion as a pimply-faced 15-year-old was worth more than his opinion of sleeping in and staying somewhere warm. And, and, and that doesn't go unnoticed when people do that to you. Proud people can't do that. Proud people can't do that. You're always honoring yourself, seeking your own wants and your own needs. C.S. Lewis said this. If you haven't heard anything today, hear this. Because it's, it's awesome because it doesn't come from me. It comes from C.S. Lewis. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride doesn't just affect our relationships with one another. It affects our relationship with God. As he says, if I'm arrogant and proud, I'm looking down. And God's above me. And only the humble person can see God. We must pursue unity. We must practice humility. We must receive glory. I want you to notice something. Most of the time, people in power, um, bosses at your jobs, CEOs, politicians, they get all the perks. They get more money. They get the nicer office. They get you know, the better schedules. They get all the perks of being in that position of power. In the Christian life, it's not so. Jesus, king of the universe, creator of everything, doesn't sit in the corner office in the cushy chair with the massive amounts of vacation time and just soak it all in for himself. He chooses to come down and serve. And not just chooses to come down and serve, he chooses to die a brutal death to meet our needs, to forgive our sins. We, the last step here is we receive glory. Paul gives us the perfect example of humility in Jesus Christ. Read this with me. I would, I would encourage you to, to really uh, digest this passage as, as it is so impacting. In verse 6, it says, Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Really quickly, let's look at all the ways Jesus humbles himself in that passage. Jesus did not have to do any of this. A lot of times you'll hear that 
Jesus was lonely, hanging out by himself in heaven. Jesus needs me like, like, a, like I'm a teddy bear and he's, he can't sleep well without me around. That's not true at all. Jesus is perfectly sufficient, perfectly holy, lacking nothing. And yet he chooses to create the world. And then he chooses to be born as a helpless, dependent, crying baby. The God of the universe coming down as man. And when he came down as man, that means he's going to experience pain. He's going to experience emotions. He's going to experience suffering. He's going to experience death. So he humbles himself from dwelling in perfect perfection, perfect holiness, to becoming man. As man, he then humbles himself as God to die. Well, he doesn't choose any death for himself. He chooses death on a cross. And the death on a cross isn't, you know, it's not nice. In our culture, when we, when we do uh, execution, we kind of make it somewhat painless, somewhat humane. Romans, not so. Death on a cross was brutal. It was torture. It was the death of criminals. He died between two violent men. He died, death on a cross, being nailed to, to pieces of wood that he created, being mocked and spit on by humans that he created, um, feeling the nerves and the pain from cells and nerves that he designed to feel pain. Um, all these things he created, and yet he says from the cross, Father, forgive them. Talk about humility. He, when you and I stub our toe, we deserve it. We deserve to feel the pain as sinners. Pain is a consequence of sin in this world. So even though we just stub our toe, we kind of still deserve to feel pain. Jesus never deserved to feel any pain. And yet he subjected himself to the worst kind of pain and experienced the wrath of God. And yet he didn't do it for himself. He did it for me and you. He did it to forgive our sins. People like Romans 5.8 says, who were sinners at the time. It says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not go, wow, you guys are so great coming to church every Sunday, trying to love people, trying to help the poor, trying to spread my word. I think I'll die for you. He says, you're wretched. You don't honor me as God. And I will die for you because I love you. He humbles himself freely, voluntarily, so many levels. And here's the pattern of the Christian life. It's not glorify yourself, glorify yourself, glorify yourself, and then you get <clears throat> all the pleasures in the world. It's humble yourself, and God will glorify you when he sees fit in the way he sees fit. The cross, so to speak, for Jesus and for us comes before the crown. We will be rewarded as Christians. We will be exalted. We will be glorified. But notice how I phrased this. I said... We receive glory. We, we pursue unity. We practice humility. We don't pursue glory. We receive it from God. We humble ourselves. We have one choice today. It's humble yourself. You humble yourself or you exalt yourself. And the Bible is very clear. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's a promise of God. And you see here in verse, in verse 9. Therefore... God has highly exalted him. When you see a therefore, you go, what's it there for? <laughs> it's because Jesus humbled himself all those levels that God has highly exalted him. And that is the promise for us today.
If you humble yourself before God and in service of others, God promises to exalt you. It's a promise. Everyone wants to be exalted. Everyone wants to be glorified. Christian and non-Christian. But there's one path for it. There's not many paths. There's one path. And the one path is to humble yourself before your friends, before your family members, and ultimately before God. To put wants and needs of others and ultimately God's wants above our own. Our agenda, we don't just make our agenda and live it out. We go, God, how do, how, how, how do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? You're my master, and I will submit to you, even if it means sacrificing for others. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are exalted. You are exalted in the heavens and, and our knees bow and our tongues confess that you are Lord of the world. You're Lord of our lives. But you didn't just, just exalt yourself. You, you chose to humble yourself, God. You paved the path for us and we must follow in your footsteps. If we're called Christians, we have to follow in your footsteps, God. And I, I pray for myself you would help me do that. It is so hard to humble myself, to put my needs as less important than other people's gods. It's so hard, Lord, for, for me to do that. It's hard for my brothers and sisters in here, but you will give us the grace, and I pray that you can help us to humble ourselves. And God, we do look forward to the day when, when we go home to be with you and when you exalt us, when you reward us for the way we've lived our lives. We do look forward to that in hope. But right now, God, we know that the choice is clear and our path is clear because Jesus lived it out for us. We must humble ourselves. And I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. Jesus, I, I, I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that it says right here, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God, and I pray that everyone in here today would choose to do that in this life and not be forced to do it after death. I pray that we would bow our knees and confess that you are Lord and that you are Savior here and now, and thus receive forgiveness of sins, rather than later when we realize it's too late, God. So I do pray um, that you would be the God and the Savior of each individual in here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how true it is. Thank you for blessing us um, by forgiving our sins, and I pray that we could live out a life of worship for you because of what you've done, Lord. pray all this in your precious name. Amen.